0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it.
1: The button station stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, cause the... King- For joining us once again. This is Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview Radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks.
0: And I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: And we have a great guest today, an author, and we're going to get right to it very soon but i want to remind people that they can check out our website evidenceforfaith.com that's evidence the number four faith.com where you can find archived shows you can also listen to us through podcasts at itunes or at double twist and you can always check out our facebook page and ask questions get into discussions there or you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. Also check out rashiachristi.org for more information about the Student Apologetics Alliance. Uh, I have a quote of the day, Kurt. This one will be interesting, I think, for you. And for me, it's from H.G. Wells. And I'm stealing it once again from Apologetics 315 since they just send them to me in the email and I don't have to look up any quotes. (laughs) So, And usually I like the ones they send. Uh, So this quote from H.U.L.S. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. That's from H.G. Wells hmm. Well, I had a couple of news items, Kirk, but when I went to do the research on them, they you know it was a, bu- a bunch of flash in the pan stuff. It was uh, uh, you know, fancy headlines. and so oh, this sounds interesting. So you print it out, put it in the pile for stuff to uh, look at and research for the show, and it was just a bunch of nothing, so um, <laughs> a little editorial uh, over hyperbole, I think, with the uh, with the uh, headlines, so nothing really going on out there, at least that I came across.
0: Where are you doing your research, the National Enquirer?
1: Um, <laughs> well, you know what? People send me stuff, and, and uh, my wife prints out stuff for me, and I get tons of emails all the time, so I try to... Um, you know, sift through a lot of the more kind of traditional apologetics uh, stuff and try to stick with just the more interesting things. So if I think it's interesting, i put it on the show.
0: Well, folks, that means there's nothing interesting happening in the world this week. (laughs) Tune in next week and maybe we'll have something for you. (laughs) That's right.
1: That is exactly right. Well, we do have something interesting, though. and That's what we're going to be doing. We're just going to jump right into the main topic of the show. So I want to introduce the Evidence for Faith listeners to Paul Ernst. Paul, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Well,
2: thank you, Keith. Uh, I'm glad to be on uh uh, I feel like with that uh, introduction, uh, you only do the more interesting things. The bar set kind of high, so uh, that's exactly right. <laughs> but we'll see what God does with it.
1: Well, and I'm very impressed with your book. So uh, let's just tell people your book is called "You Bet Your Life," and the subtitle is very interesting: "A Toolbox for Making Life's Ultimate Decision." So, Paul, you are a teacher, a chemist. Um, I always like to start out by asking authors about themselves. So tell us a little bit more about well, I'll yourself. Go,
2: I'll go ahead with, a, with li- a bio, and if I, if I get long-winded, uh, feel free to cut me off and change the subject. The but <clears throat> um, I was always fascinated with science. I wasn't a great student. I went to a, probably a, a B-minus university where I, I majored chemistry and uh, was accepted to graduate school and never went. I opened a motorcycle shop instead. I guess I can tell you how uh, how much of an egghead I am, and um, uh, raised in a marginally Christian household, Dad thought it'd be a good idea to take me to church. By the time I was in high school, I was under the uh, influence of a college buddy who was taking philosophy classes and uh, existentialism and Zen, and all these ideas were whizzing by me, and I thought they were pretty heavy stuff. And uh, mm. God sounded like Santa Claus. And uh, I didn't return to the faith until, uh, or uh, I should probably more say come to faith until uh, my early 50s. And I spent most of that time as a, oh, kind of a scientific materialist in my worldview. I was never a rabid atheist. Uh, I thought the Christian story you know, held some attraction. And, uh, but it was just a little unbelievable. Right. I decided I wanted to believe what the smart people believed, and they were all naturalists.
1: Yep. Very good. So you were an atheist for how many years?
2: Well, it would have been from um, entering high school until about age 52. Okay. Uh, So I know it was... um, uh, 12 years ago, because it's written in my Bible. I just uh, celebrated that anniversary.
1: Okay. in oh, Interesting. Oh, my goodness. So for you, then, how do you look at your past life? I would, you know, uh, God was so kind to me that he saved me when I was 18. I was exactly like you. I wanted not to be a pretender. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with something you couldn't know for sure. And, uh, you know, I remember... a. Uh, being, oh, maybe in junior high, and a friend of mine saying, you know, when you become a a scientist, you have to promise to be an atheist. And I go, oh really? Is that true? (laughs) Yeah, I uh,
2: probably wasn't that philosophically aware to know that they strictly entailed each other the way it's presented now. But um, it just (laughs) seemed that uh, empiricism and and science was the way to truth, and anything else was
1: uh, just guessing. So, looking back at your life, do you do you feel bad? Do you feel like, hey, you know, how come I didn't know this? What, you know?
2: Well, I tell you what, I, I feel bad about. Uh, of course, the, the responsibility is on me. God tells us uh, that you know men are without excuse, and in hindsight, I, I can see that. Um, so, some of it was rooted in pride about wanting to believe what the smart people believed. Mm. And I wanted to be one of the smart people if I really was, I would have majored in physics and got a doctorate, but there're just not enough cubic inches under under the hood here to to go on that far but uh you know, I like to read Scientific American and uh, feel that I had some proximity to that you know sort of bask in the glow of the uh, the intelligentsia <laughs>
1: right, right. Wow. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, tell people then about how you came to discover Christianity and make Jesus the Lord of your life.
2: Well, I was involved um, in a business deal. At the time, I was writing a newsletter for people that were investing in biotechnology. Um, with my degree in chemistry and having worked for a pharmaceutical company and also having been a stockbroker, I thought that field was... Uh, underrepresented, and I thought, I could write a newsletter, and uh, was a terrible writer, um, but managed to actually sell a few things to to some doctors, and I wrote up this one company that had a promising arthritis treatment, and they were doing an IPO, a startup, so I went to the dinner, and uh, it was mostly industry stockbroker types there. And one of the principals got up and said, God gave us these seven molecules, and we need to use them with integrity. And uh, everybody's looking at each other. Where would that come from? And three weeks later, I got uh, an envelope from this person who's an attorney, a very official law firm-looking envelope. And it was an attorney argues for the divinity of Jesus Christ, as though it was a court brief. It was about 30 pages long. And at the time, I was involved in cross-country ski racing, driving up from Denver up to the mountains every weekend. And I tell my girlfriend, I said, read some of that to me. And it was uh, evidence of the resurrection and um, the messianic prophecies and how they related to Jesus. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, nobody ever told me this stuff in Sunday school. And I'd, I'd have her read a few pages, and then I'd put it down. And then I thought, you know, I'm over 50. And uh, I maybe I'm staring at eternity here. I'm on the downside. Maybe I better figure this some of this stuff out. So I went to work on it, and I ran into a few believers. They sent me The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and I got into that whole genre. And at the mm. same time, I'm, I'm on the Internet, and I'm, I'm Googling stuff. Of course, you, you know, you get links, and I'm over at Internet Infidels. So I'm thinking, I'm really hoping this is true, and I go, ah, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. But after uh, about 18 months of sifting, uh, I said, I'm I'm compelled to believe this. A friend of mine said, well, you want to go to church with me? Uh, So I did. I brought my girlfriend, and uh, she was not interested. But after attending church one time, she said, I need something in my life. We, we told the pastor we were interested in joining, and I guess we need to be married He says, no, you don't understand i'll marry you then you can join. Oh, is that how it works <laughs> and, and as it turned out, this first pastor, his day job was a philosophy professor, so I took his classes at the local college, and I oh. had all my questions you know were how did something come from nothing and all that stuff Fandals. so thanks to Dr. Max Sotak uh, now at Regis university uh you know, I think I got a, a relatively fast education, and he pointed me to the vast array of apologetic literature out there, um, based on my personality and what he thought worked. And so, that put me in that uh, wide world of apologetics, which isn't so wide. I've come to know most of the most of the principal figures in it. Uh, and that's uh, what I've been, been in. What I've been in for uh, the last uh, ten years or
1: so. Wonderful. Well, let's uh, remind people. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith and Ministry of Rasho Christie. I'm Keith Kendricks,
0: and I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: And we are speaking with Paul Ernst, author of "You Bet Your Life: A Toolbox for Making Life's Ultimate." decision
0: and i guess we should let people know at this point that this book is not a biography of groucho marx yeah that's right i
1: I thought of the same thing
2: (laughs) yeah and and if you all keep buying the book you'll keep me ahead of groucho marx in the search
1: engines (laughs) (laughs) that's good so um so paul let me ask you then why did you write this book well um
2: a significant detail came up um I alluded to the fact that I was a cross-country ski racer, and I was pretty darn good at it, to to the point of uh, probably idolatry. And um, my last year of racing, I started going downhill pretty fast, had some test run. Uh, Turns out I had heart failure. The muscle was giving out. Mm. Uh, Maybe genetics, maybe just abuse. And I was told to take medicine and uh, not push too hard. And I was out on my roller skis, if anybody knows what those are, Um, and I dropped dead in the neighborhood. That was a cardiac arrest, and I was without a heartbeat for 40 minutes. And as God's providence would have it, uh, I dropped in front of the house of a trained lifeguard from Hawaii, who was just stepping out the door. Uh, So I had excellent CPR, and still my odds were very long, and... I've recovered from that. I have an implantable defibrillator, and it's been a really bumpy road. But it was a touch and go for a few years. And I've been teaching an apologetics class at my local church. And one of the elders says, you know, you ought to get some of this stuff down. You've had some pretty good material in your class. And I tried to put out a couple of things, and I showed it to him. Steve Hoffman is in the, in the uh, acknowledgements. And he said, Geez, you're a terrible writer. I think. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know I go. am. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, I tell you what, why don't you work on this, and I'll look it over for you? Well, Steve beat on me for about four years until so he said I had something acceptable. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I guess, uh,
1: so by then you need. I'll a ask second, a question a for
2: you. Why another apologetics book? Because I'm sitting here right now in my office looking up at a you know a shelf full of uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Gary Habermas. You know they're all there. Um, mm-hmm. You know I'm not an expert in any of these particulars. Uh, I've done a little science. I've taken some philosophy classes, but I'm certainly uh, not a scholar by any stretch. But one of the things I wanted to get down was. Uh, an approach for the lost. A lot of those books make right. you know, very strong arguments for their particulars. That the universe had a beginning, or life requires a designer. And I've got that stuff in my book. But I came out of you know a pool of friends that were you know, pretty much all atheists, or in many cases here in Boulder, a pantheistic. We have a Buddhist university. And um, breaking through to them was very difficult. And I can't say I've I've had a lot of success, but I've thought about ways to frame it. And I I, I think the ultimate way to get the the attention of the world I'm coming from, which is past 50, you know, I think we're all looking at the other side, is to start with an indisputable fact. We're all going to die. And I was very familiar with the work of Pascal and the wager, and so with death as the indubitable starting point, Um, and the wager, which we can talk about a little, uh, I'm trying to frame this in such a way that I have their attention that their eternal destiny is worthy of consideration. And Pascal was essentially giving a plea to his countrymen not to be reckless with their souls.
1: Yeah, the uh, point I want to stress with our listeners is that this is a book for non-Christians. And That's actually fairly rare. There's a lot of apologetics books out there that are written for other Christians, um, which is fine, but uh, it just surprises me. I'm I'm a bit surprised that there aren't more books that aren't uh, essentially large tracts. Um, you know there are some out there and there's some good ones, but uh, but you know this, this takes that approach and I think this is a perfect kind of book that you would want to get um, to give to your unsaved friends. So let's talk a little bit about the approach that it takes. You've got I noticed that you have a very specific approach that you're, um, you have the book in several different parts and you're trying to take take the reader from the position they're in now and move them. Uh, To Christianity, so let's talk about that approach. How do you go about doing that?
2: Well, I'm 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 grateful that you at least see what I'm trying to do here, because you never know whether you're successful in these things. But uh, part one is titled "How How Are We to Think About the Way Things Are?" Is a lot of people didn't how think. I know I didn't until I had a philosophy class. It was just sort of uh, scattered speculation. And um, so this is where the worldview approach, and, and a lot of people have worldview approaches out there, but uh, i'm I'm trying to get them into some kind of uh you know organized system to think about thinking and because before we can even start, uh, I think that's what you sort of have to presuppose here because everybody commits to some kind of system of thought, whether they know it or not.
0: That's an interesting term you use, scattered speculation. And when you said that, I thought, gee, there's an awful lot of that going around in the scientific community today, <laughs> the so-called scientific community.
2: And Yeah, I, you can see it, I think, in um, Lawrence Krause and uh, Stephen Hawking and a lot of people that should know better.
0: And some of it is, is, you know, I read some of the stuff these guys, like Hawking, uh, talk about, and it sounds more like science fiction than science to me. I think they're getting the two a little mixed up.
2: Well, they're certainly slipping in uh, philosophy under the guise of science. And, yeah, you know, That's one of the detectors, I think, that uh, you need to learn to develop, is, is to know, what, you know, what type of snake oil
1: you're being sold. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that uh, I wrote this quote down from, I think it was your first chapter. Uh, you said, we take in ideas without examination. Do you want to um, expand on that?
2: Yeah, since very few people have a thought-out worldview, uh, the stuff that comes at us through media, entertainment, uh, it just sort of goes into a, a, a pastiche uh, uh the uh, late apologist Ronald Nash said, that, you know, some people's worldview uh, it looks like they took a bowl of spaghetti and just hurled it up against the wall. <laughs> and um, so unless in, in you've taken a philosophical approach, and I like to give up a, uh, a definition of the worldview as a control set of beliefs that determines how we think about our experience, And this can be held either consciously or unconsciously, and most times it's unconsciously. I mean, there are probably some committed naturalists out there that, you know, I'm going to take every evidence and run it through the grid of naturalism, Mm. Um, but most of us don't really label ourselves as as having a worldview. So I think at minimum with the book, even if somebody doesn't come around to my particular set of beliefs... um, at least I like to engage in worldview clarification. You know, the school right. system talks about values clarification a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I'm trying to have an exercise in worldview clarification here.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I, that's interesting, too, that uh, along with what you just said, I think a lot of people today don't bother to... Uh, construct a worldview for themselves because there's so much entertainment and so much activity and so many things vying for our attention today through the media and movies and everything else that's thrown at us that it's, it's become more possible today to go through your entire life and be constantly busy but never think about your worldview.
2: Yeah, and the way information uh, comes at us now, it encourages fragmentation. Yeah. Um, you know, diversity rather than unity. Near As Francis Schaefer said, you know, the original idea behind a university was to take a particulars and put them together into a unity. And there's not even much attempt to do that. In fact, there's an assumption that it can't be done. And that's
1: one of the things I think an apologist has to overcome.
0: Yeah, and that's where the uh, scattered spaghetti on the wall comes in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you're... Uh first step, then, is to show people that agnosticism isn't a safe place for a person to be. Would that yeah, be
2: right? I think I illustrate sort of a soft agnosticism. Uh, you know, maybe there are certain things that uh, we shouldn't hold too tightly because we don't have a lot of information on it. But when it comes to making ultimate commitments uh, about is there a God and, and such things like that, these decisions are actually forced decisions even if you don't recognize them. It's like you're sitting on a jury in a capital case, and you're going to have to vote thumbs up or thumbs down. You can't get off the jury. And so that's just the nature of some of the decisions. For example, uh, you could say the decision to marry or have children uh, is in some ways forced, because if you don't take that road, you know, the door closes, and mm. uh, you're committed to the path that you chose.
1: Right, right. Excellent. So, um, so after clarifying um, or, or trying to show people the importance of thinking clearly and the importance of these ultimate questions that they ought to be uh, facing, what's the next step?
2: Well, I'll just back up a little bit uh, and point you at Chapter Four on developing a worldview because I think the system there is uh, somewhat unique. I got it from my philosophy professor, uh, Dr. Sotak. You can see a lot of it's in block quotes. And they're essentially all all, all thinking drops into, you know, one of three buckets, either naturalism, pantheism, or theism. And they're all sort of faith commitments. There's a certain circularity to them that's inescapable. And it makes it sort of sound like they're a Mexican standoff, just pick one. But we should pick the worldview that within that circle uh, best accounts for the evidence at hand. Such as why there's something instead of nothing, why the universe appears designed, um, why do we have uh, a book that appears to predict the future, or uh, a history that appears to point to an empty tomb. You know, what world do you best account for all these things? Because uh, I had the there's a, a short story in the book. Uh, my, my business partner, when I was developing my Christian ideas, I went up to lunch with him, and I said, you know, Chris, it appears that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He said, well, I have any problem with that. Well, I always uh, thought that the resurrection entailed Christianity was true. Right. But he was a Buddhist, and he thought, well, Jesus was just an ascended master. He knew the uh, trick. You know, if you're, if you're divine, you could do it, too. So uh, what I thought was, uh, you know, for me, Christianity stood or fall on the resurrection. I kind of got that from childhood. But right. for, my, for my friend, uh, that wasn't the case at all. So uh, right. yeah, this needed the, a worldview. Uh, the show approach, we like to say everybody
1: wants evidence. a piece of Jesus. Yeah. So they they all want Jesus to be uh, you know in their religion and he fits in. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's interesting too. That this guy thinks that if you just learn the trick, that anybody can come back from the dead. But can he show us anybody else that he knows that did it? <laughs> no, it's only been done once, at least with right. any evidence. <laughs>
1: Good. So okay. So um, so then um, so then we go to the evidence. Is that right? Is this is yeah. This is I am part
2: two um, I borrowed that from Josh McDowell. Obviously, uh, evidence demands a verdict. The
1: book uh-huh. of nature,
2: and so I'm breaking my evidence up into general and special revelation. Okay. And. Um, the cosmological argument is essentially the one that uh, William Wayne Craig uses, the Kalam cosmological argument. I think that's more effective than uh, you know, yes. Aquinas or uh, uh, Leibniz is uh, necessary. I think all of those work, mm-hmm. but I think the one that has the most force, uh, at least in the atheist world, is the uh, Kalam cosmological argument, where anything that begins to exist has a cause, and you can't have an infinite regress of causes. So there is a necessary first cause, and then that argument is developed as to whether that cause is personal or impersonal. That sounds like quite a leap, but I think Dr. Craig does a, a pretty good job of uh, showing why the first cause is personal. And uh, I also tackle some of the rebuttals to that because we have Lawrence Krauss's book out now, *A Universe from Nothing*, and I have a diagram in my book showing the uh, the. Uh, infinite multiverse coming out of the uh, uh, past eternal quantum vacuum, and, and, I, and I make a, an argument as to why I think there are major flaws with that, that
1: approach. Then uh, do you go, do you cover fine tuning of the yeah. universe? Do you. Do you cover uh, ID and biology? Yeah,
2: that's uh, in Chapter 7. After the cosmological argument, uh, I'm following the classical uh, apologetic approach, then arguing from design. And I start off with uh, design in the physical world as opposed to biology, uh, because physics is a simpler science. And you can't appeal to the magical powers of the of Darwinian natural selection to be be the designer. So you have brute force uh, design staring you in the face with the fine-tuning. And, um, yeah, I I put up some numbers there. One is uh, something from Roger Penrose. It's esoteric. I don't even pretend to understand it, except I can write the number down. It's 10 to the 10th of the 23rd power for the phase space fine-tuning. And whatever that's about, uh that number is so mind-boggling. You couldn't write it out if you put zeros all the way across the, the known universe. And so that pretty much shuts the door to, uh, uh, I think, any by chance or naturalistic argument uh, for cosmic design.
1: Right, and it is very effective. Uh, according to uh, the well, now-deceased uh, former atheist Anthony Flew, that was the argument that led him to theism.
2: Yeah, and I, I tie in with Anthony Flew towards the end of my book. Right, we, we will get there, because he and I had a kind of a similar path, and then we diverged. And I, I looked at the reasons for that divergence, but uh, I'll postpone that till we get there.
1: Okay. Well, um, well, walk us along. I'm really intrigued with this whole idea of you know that you've written a book that is for the non-Christian who who, and you're going to walk him along, um, you know, as if you were having a, a, a long discussion with him and. You know, you first established the importance of thinking about things like this and, and the fact that you can actually know some things uh, about uh, eternal things and whether God exists or not. And then you begin to show the evidence that God exists. So, all right, so we've shown that um, there's good evidence that God exists. What's the next step? Where do we go with Well,
2: this the process? next step is, you know, I want to move to uh, Jesus rather quickly. And... um But again, in in keeping with the idea of leading people along the path, is people have preconceived ideas about how Jesus is or who he is. Mm. And those things just didn't occur in a vacuum. There's a history uh, about why the, uh, at least the secular world, thinks what they do about Jesus. And so I titled that Jesus Studies Since the Enlightenment, where all this kind of got kicked off and uh, you know one of the first things you'll run into uh is is david hume's thinking and his his argument against uh, miracles and his uh kind of global skepticism and so i walk people through some of the enlightenment thinking which is very much with us today and uh through uh, deism uh on to uh, getting a little closer to us, uh, uh, Immanuel Kant, and you you know, you can't know uh, uh, spiritual realities, they're behind the wall of unknowing, can't believe them, you just think, well, we didn't know them. Mm. And um, so I think th- framing that historical background helps somebody see, gee, maybe that's why I think about this stuff the way I do. Very and, interesting. Uh, then I so get to the, the meat kind of it, of a, which is God's that's, existence that's, uh, the, in the resurrection of Jesus.
1: That's kind of a, a Francis Schaefer like approach uh to things, giving yeah, that. Yeah, I have been influenced by
2: Schaefer. My first pastor, the philosophy professor, gave me uh, uh He is there and He Is Not Silent and uh you know I'm probably somewhat
1: influenced by that. Well, I wish we saw more of that because um, I think you're right about the importance of that. Um, I know it was very important for me as a young believer to see how ideas had changed uh, over time and why it was that we believe the things we do. So I'm certain that it's important for non-Christians to see how they got to, to think the way they do.
2: Yeah, we're, we're at the end of a chain of ideas, and the, the, quote, ideas have consequences, and you're at the end of a causal, a causal chain of thinking, and if you are going to accept it, fine, but at least you ought to know where it came from. Uh, so this is where a little history and philosophy, I, I think, are useful.
1: Now, you next approach, do you next approach the resurrection or do you go to the reliability of Scripture? I think probably a traditional apologist's view would, you know, God exists and then the Bible is reliable.
2: Well, since I was with the uh, arguments from nature, uh, I was arguing for the existence of God. That's considered the classic formulation. And even though most apologists don't do it, just following my table of contents, it says God's existence in the resurrection of Jesus. This is not so much an argument uh, for the resurrection, I developed that later, is I'm using Jesus to argue for God's existence. And that may seem a little odd, but that's the way I came to faith, um, as I'm reading things like The Case for Christ. I'm getting more and more confidence, you know, that Jesus' tomb was empty on Easter morning, and that He appeared, et cetera, et cetera. And I still have a hard time getting wrapping my uh, head around the idea of a, you know, an infinite personal God. That's a little more nebulous. And so, for me, I went what's perhaps backwards from the classical formulation: is if Jesus was raised from the dead, what is the best explanation from that for that? Well, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then later I develop a context is it's not just any God, but the God of the Bible.
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, for those who are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks.
0: And I'm Kirk Hastings.
1: And we are speaking with author Paul Ernst, author of the book You Bet Your Life. And, Paul, this is really... Um, I think I will be adding this to there are only two or three books that I think of when I think of getting a book for a non-Christian friend that I'd like to witness to, and this is definitely going to be on that uh, arsenal of uh, basically large tracts. I like to think of them as a large tract. Here you go. Here is... Uh, the evidence, here's, here's the direction I think that you ought to uh, go, and here's how to think about it. Uh, so I'm really encouraged with the, the approach that you've taken with this book.
2: Well, that uh, was very heartening. Cause I tell you, as, as a non-writer, uh, I thought, boy, it's pretty presumptuous for me to even attempt this. But
1: uh, uh, No, you know, uh, that's the thing. I think, um, you know, uh, of course, Kirk and I are in the apologetics field. Kirk has written a book, um, and, you know, it was uh, his... Um, kind of analysis and review of the evidence that he had come across that so many people just don't come across. Uh, even as Christians, it's surprising how many Christians are out there and really have no idea the kind of evidence that supports the truth of Christianity. But we're always looking for new ways to uh, approach the topic and new ways to reach the non-Christian. And I know I try to make an effort in this radio show, not to just present the evidence, and whoever listens, you know, that's fine, but I actually try to make my approach to the non-Christian. I want to always be thinking about the non-Christian who's listening, and um, what way would be the best approach? Um, Sure, I got lots of evidence, I got lots of, but how do I present it in a way that's going to be attractive to the non-Christian? So... Uh, so I'm just real thrilled with this. So let's see, then, you get into uh, historical reliability of the Bible. So tell us a little bit about your um, your chapters on that.
2: Well, I mean, I talk about the reliability of the text and its transmission. Um, I have a uh, uh, a, sub, a subheading on Chapter 11, Who Wrote the New Testament? And while I believe that uh, the traditional uh, attributions are, are correct... From a pure apologetic standpoint, I don't think the authorship is critical. What is critical is that it comes out of the apostolic circle in the time frame of the eyewitnesses. So the crucial thing is that this is eyewitness material. Mm. And it's, a, I think, of somewhat lesser importance whether the Gospel is according to Matthew or, or by Matthew's own pen. You know, in the case of Luke, we you know, pretty much say he's writing in his own hand, and Paul says that in places. Paul's letters are for the authorship of the of, of Pauline epistles, the major ones, are not in any kind of question. But. Um, my takeaway for the reader to not get too bogged down into a you know an internal Christian debate uh, you know, over the mm. synoptic of problem or any of, any of those things is to just come away with this is eyewitness material and First uh, Corinthians fifteen weighs weighs heavy
1: on that and and how do you how do you um, what's your evidence that you present that that it is eyewitness as opposed to legend. Well, the dating
2: argument is is extremely important there, and I think even some Christian scholars that, uh, no more than I do, but I still have a bit of a bone to pick, some of them uh, unnecessarily late date some of these materials. And I take the approach, uh, I think uh, as does R.C. Sproul and and several others, and and even the liberal J.T. Robinson. Um, that there's no reason to think that any New Testament book was written after 70 A.D. Uh, because of the uh, uh, massive and shocking nature of the uh, destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem. I know it's an argument from silence, but it's really hard to believe that these Jewish writers wouldn't mention the destruction of the Temple, uh, particularly Matthew. You know, Matthew's whole theme his prophecy and fulfillment. You know, he's going through the New Testament. I mean, the Old Testament. And he said, the Old Testament says this, and guess what? Jesus did it, And you know, to fulfill. And he's just back and forth. And in Matthew 24, um, Matthew has Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple, and if Matthew had lived to see it and write it, I, I don't see how you could have stopped him from saying, Jesus predicted it, and look what, look what happened. <laughs> You know, right. the right. absence of that, I think, is enormous. And the historian Paul Meyer makes that argument very effectively.
1: Now, you mention about fulfilled prophecy, which is great, because uh, I'm surprised at the number of apologetics books that kind of ignore prophecy. And for me, moving from skepticism to Christianity, uh, fulfilled prophecy was very important. Uh, you know, it was uh, one of the... Um, Nails in the coffin for me to see that that there were uh, all these prophecies that had been literally uh, and very specifically fulfilled.
2: Yeah, that was huge for me, and I, I think it's a failure of the modern church not to do, not to do more of this. Um, I was previously attending a, a large a PCUSA church that uh, you know they're a little liberal, but they're still, you know, within uh, within belief, and I, I talked to one of the pastors there, and he pretty much denied that that phenomena was there at all. He said, Paul, you, wow. you just got your Jesus glasses on, you're reading that stuff into it. Well, my <laughs> philosophy professor came to faith that way, and I know a bunch of people that did, and it is it is a historic argument uh, for the faith, and Pascal used it. Um, and I, I, because some people think Pascal's argument is strictly one of prudential outcomes, and that it was some sort of generic God he was arguing for. And no, he was arguing for the God of the Bible based on the prophecies, which he said are not present in the Quran, um, And we know they're not present in any other holy book. And also that for uh, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, you might say it's one of those weird things. Or as my Buddhist friend said, you know, maybe an ascended master or guru could, you know, pull off the trick but it's the fact that Jesus comes out of this uniquely Jewish context that makes him the Jewish Messiah. Um, that's what keeps the resurrection from just being some sort of one-off oddity, is the uh, the Jewish context of it. And I think that's being neglected, and I really did want to pound that nail. And I, and I, sp- I spent some time on it, um, because Jesus appealed to it uh, himself, in fact, mm-hmm. his first time out, he opens the Isaiah scroll and says, guess mm-hmm. what, folks, this is me. And and his audience wouldn't have accepted that kind of thinking, except they were Jewish, and they'd seen fulfilled prophecy even within the Old Testament, uh, such as the destruction of Tyre and a number of things like that that I point to. So um, this is very much uh, Jewish thinking, uh, Deuteronomy 18, the test of the prophet. Uh, Jesus appealed to it. So I think for the modern church, you know, to drop this is is a big mistake.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you next go to some objections uh, to the Christian view of God, and you've got some standard ones. But I'm very interested. I want to hone in on this. You have uh, a section on the hiddenness of God, which again I think is another very neglected area that's not a lot written on it. And uh, so, could you expand on what you have about the hiddenness of God and why we need to know about
0: it? You know, that's yeah, funny. Occurred. That's that's the section that jumped out at me, too, Keith, when I was looking over the book. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, well, you know, I, I feel like I, I didn't do that much with it, but I, I, I put it in there because I, I, I know it is kind of big. And in a very crass way, atheists like to say, well, I'm going to pray up here on the stage to be struck by lightning in five minutes, and it doesn't happen, and they say, see, he doesn't exist. Um, and so uh, I think the approach is, well, just how hidden should he be? Because if God's presence was overly intrusive, uh, there wouldn't be any room for faith or for for trust. And I think I use an analogy, like if there's a policeman on every corner or, or mm-hmm. you know, there's a cop car behind you when you're driving, you know, can you say your driving is virtuous because you're not breaking the speed limit?
1: <laughs>
2: and
0: so, that was a good analogy. I like yeah, that.
2: <laughs> I, I think we have to trust God that, that he's apparent in just the right amount. There's enough evidence for those who truly seek him. That, and the Bible it's... actually tells us that he that He hides himself for those that don't want to find them. So, yes. yeah, God God does hide.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and you well, you have it in the words of Jesus very specifically. They asked him, why are you talking in parables? Yep. You know, and then he who has ears to hear. That's right. That's right. So the, So there's just enough evidence for those who are searching and for those who don't want to hear it Okay.
0: And it's interesting too, uh when you look at the passages uh and it's it it's a number of times in the gospels where uh Jesus committed miracles and then he turns around and tells his apostles, Shh, "Don't tell anybody I did this." And I used to question that. It's like why would he say that? It's like wouldn't he want everybody to know that he's doing these miraculous things, but he really was hesitant to Um, allow that part of his, I guess, divine nature to be widely known because then, of course, it would be easy to believe in him. And I don't think he wanted that.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of forced forced belief.
0: Yeah, that's kind of like the cop car on every corner analogy again.
1: Right. Well, another thing that popped out at me was the chapter on God's grace and salvation. And you've got a, a section there I'm spiritual, so why do I need God? And that, I think that uh, is another very big stumbling block out in the community. I'm a spiritual person. I just don't, you know, need to be so um, Jesus nutty as you are.
2: Yeah, most of us, if if you're in the apologetics business at all, you probably wish you had a nickel for every time you heard that. So and, how do you approach um, that? Yeah, and I think people that's where also where I think the world view of pantheism comes in, which is a which is a counterfeit spirituality. You know, it's all the thrills of religion and none of the responsibility. And mm. um it's a whole different ball game to put yourself under the authority of a person. And so I think you can, you, know, you you gently lead need to lead the person to you know, maybe see if they if they have a problem with authority. And also that these uh, beliefs that are rooted in uh, pantheistic philosophy, they don't do anything for you. Uh, You know, under most forms of pantheism, when your life comes to an end, you're poured out like a cup into the ocean. Those are all the analogies of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. And so you disappear, you don't get eternal life. So for the seeker of eternal life, this spiritual stuff, it just doesn't get you anywhere. Even if it's true, what good is it?
1: Mm. Very good, very good. So um, then, as you finish up the book, are, you, are we back to the um, Pascal wager?
2: Yeah, I circle back to the wager, um, and I'm trying to get people to focus on what they actually want. Um Because unless you have an interest in eternal life uh and this is what Jesus provides you know that's that's that 's what he 's selling to put it crassly um, and so I really want people to focus on the issues of the heart. I think I have a little ditty in there from a rock song, Follow your heart mm-hmm. um, and then I have a quote from um, I think it 's Jeremiah seventeen The heart is desperately wicked.." And so you've got to be careful of where, where your heart's taking you,
1: right.
2: um, and why do you want what you want. So I'm trying to tie up the evidences and get them to align with people's deepest desires, which hopefully is, is eternal life, the existence of their per- personhood and their ego, and being uh, reunited with loved ones, and ultimately to be reunited with Christ, that's the author and perfecter of our faith. So, and then to that end, you know, I proceed on to, uh, you know, the the standard form of the, you know, Roman's road call to uh,
1: salvation. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we've got about five minutes left, and I see a terrific appendix here. That uh, the Shroud of Turin is a big topic on the show. Uh, Kirk and I love to talk about it and love to go over the evidences, so... Um, Tell us about that. Is is it? Uh, well, I'll
2: try to make the, this quick. But uh, one of the uh, uh, other men that was at my church that was interested in apologetics, uh, about two thousand and three or four, he said, "Let's do something fun for Easter. Why don't you look into that shroud thing?" And I got the book with the latest copyright on it, "The Resurrection of the Shroud" by Mark Antonacci. And I had a couple of questions, and I called the guy up, and he sucked me in.
1: <laughs> wow.
2: And so I've been working with him on an idea, because there are over a thousand tests that point to its uh, authenticity, and there's only one that stands against it, the radiocarbon dating to the Middle Ages. And so he had a program for trying to overturn the, uh, the radiocarbon date, and I'll have to get technical to make it brief, but... We essentially took bed sheets, we irradiated them to the same standard yellow color that's found on the shroud, sent them off to a, uh, a C14 lab, and they told us the date moved by about 1300 years, which is exactly the amount the shroud misdates from the Middle Ages. Uh, I think that's a coincidence, uh, to put it mildly. And, um, now, <laughs> how
1: did you irradiate them? Because there's there's been um, some recent work about, uh, I don't remember the name of the um, process, but it involves high voltage that they've been a- able, research has been able to actually duplicate um, uh, the image on cloth using like 15,000
2: Yeah, I think you're talking about the corona discharge method. Yes, and yes, that's it. And without getting into it too far, is there... You know about fifty specific characteristics of the shroud, and I think all of these methods that, that people have tried, you know, they may get a, some of them, maybe even a majority of them, but they don't get all of them. You've got to uh, you've got to even digitize the information. It's like the dots and dashes on an old uh, newspaper. You know, the light and dark, mm-hmm. and that is encoded three dimensional uh, information as to how to build a three D image. And I don't believe any of those methods are capable of doing that. But one method that would is if the body dematerialized into its nuclear constituents, protons and neutrons, and the cloth collapsed through that radiation field, the protons being ionizing would produce the yellow color, kind of like sticking an old newspaper out in the sun, and the neutrons would move the date. And we've already demonstrated the date shift. And that also gives you other characteristics, like some of the Images from the bones and the teeth are, are in there, and one dentist commented that the shape of the jaw was like there was a central source of radiation from within the jaw imaging the teeth outward. And I don't believe the corona discharge voltage uh, you know, gives you all of those things. It gives it some of them. What so about the uh, you may want to have a guest sometime. Uh, is uh, you know, call Mark Am- Antonacci. Uh, he's a world authority on it. He's hmm. um, in conversation with Gary Habermas. That's a name you probably know.
1: Mm-hmm. And yep, has um, been a guest on the show.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think he's somebody you'd want to get on the show. Yeah, he's been. And uh, so, so anyway, so, uh, what the, do you think about
1: well, the idea Easter, of the? Um, Uh, explanation that the corners that they took the sample from were actually uh, interwoven uh, patches. Um,
2: That's controversial, um, but I think the latest thinking is, you know, the the so-called invisible patch uh, is that that's probably not the case. Our theory would say that the radiocarbon was more or less correctly done. And but we just give a reason for the result that they came up with, uh, whereas other people are trying to disprove the carbon dating, you know, via a patch or contamination or a theory like that.
1: Very interesting.
2: And uh, just well, as an addendum, this last Easter, an Italian team uh, claimed that they they got a uh, a date with an error bar of two hundred years using an infrared method. I don't know enough to discuss it.
1: Yes, it that's ADC right. We talked news. about that on the on the show. That's terrific. Yeah. Well. Listen, Paul Ernst. Uh, thank you so much for being a guest on Evidence for Faith.
2: And uh, yeah, I hope that I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for you uh, uh, putting my book up there as one for one for skeptics. And uh, you know, I, I tried to keep the price low uh, because I'm interested in distribution, not making any money. So I think it's an ideal gift for uh, reaching the lost.
1: And how can people find it?
2: Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can type in "you bet your life, uh, comma Paul Ernst. Uh, you don't even need to comma my name. Um, it, it'll just Wonderful. be not as far up in the search engine. So, Thank you, you very bet your much, life, Paul. comma Paul Ernst. And I do have a website that uh, I'm just getting open, Quickly. and it's YouBetYourLife.org. Great.
1: Great. And there's a,
2: buy, there's a buy button on my website, and I hope to put up additional articles about the shroud and everything from time to time.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. Keith, it's well, been a pleasure. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com and join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.